when an individual has been an educator for almost 50 years, has been a superintendent in six different school districts over three different states, you just listen. It's the season premiere of Education Eclipse's fifth season, and we were able to sit down with Herb Berg. What a delight it was to get to know him, talk about his career path, and have him impart some of the wisdom he learned. Yes, he dined with presidents, no joke. But perhaps even more importantly, he talks about the educational system of today, what it means to be a leader within that system, and breaking the mold of being able to predetermine what a child's academic achievements will be simply because of the zip code in which they live. Plus, he so graciously credits much of his success to Washington State University and the College of Education. Season 5 of Education Eclipse starts now. Education, news, and research. These are the conversations happening inside education, athletic training, sports science, and sport management that are going to transform each. It's Education Eclipse from Washington State University. We're here with Herb Berg, a man who's been a superintendent for various school districts, not one, not two, three different states. You've been a superintendent over the course of almost 50 years. I feel like I'm in the presence of a celebrity. <laughs> um, well, I was superintendent in three school districts in the state of Washington, where I grew up. Then I went to Alexandria, Virginia for one superintendency. And then I went down to South Carolina, where I was superintendent in three more districts, a total of six over three states. It should be noted, this is not hard-hitting journalism, right? Um, but we are going to mention something that you, you haven't done very well at. You, you have failed retirement multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> well, people laugh at me about, about that one because I was done and, and I was done and I was done and I was done. And the thing is, I had a great job. I loved what I did. I was recognized as somebody who was good at it. And I didn't want to sell furniture, shoes, or, you know, door-to-door books. <laughs> and so I did what I loved to do for all of those years. I think people forget that, uh, that a lot of times folks get into a certain line of work because they love it. And you can't just turn that off. This combination of loving it, you're good at it, you're recognized at it, and... It's one of those things where it's really hard to give it up when you like it the way I did. I had a couple things when you, you mentioned being good at it. And, and of course, you won't go through all these things because that would be gloating, but I can go through them. So you had spent 10 years helping the U.S. Department of State to improve American schools in China. You've been honored and recognized multiple times by, by states as well as the American Association of School Administrators for just the, the amazing job you've done. But you didn't do it for the accolades, I'm sure. Tell me why you got into education. I was a young kid, poor student, <laughs> definitely not a silver spoon in my mouth. And I got a great wife. And in our early years, we went to college together. We were teachers. And one thing led to another. And I was uh, asked to be a vice principal and a principal. And uh, on one Saturday morning, I was asked to be a school superintendent. So it, sort of, <laughs> it, it came along uh a little unscripted in those early years, but it was, it was all wonderful. And I learned to love what I did and I love school board members and I love the work. Um, so it just turned out to be a great life. Of course, things are getting better starting pay for teachers, but you know, you were dirt poor. Most people don't make the decision then to go into teaching to make money. So <laughs> what, yeah. drew, what drew you to that? You know, I don't know. I needed a job. I wanted to stay close to home. I grew up in a little place called Maple Valley, Washington, oh. out of, out of Seattle and there wasn't a lot to do at high school from high school days. I I was unmotivated to the point where I went in the army after high school. Really came back, started school, 
and I wanted to live sort of around home, and I didn't want to work for Boeing, and I didn't want to go in the Navy, and and uh, teaching seemed like something to, that would be good. And my wife and I, we got married, and, and uh, she was going to be a teacher, and we just sort of fell into it. What teaching did you do initially? I mean, was this elementary or secondary? I, yet, or? I, my very first job was a junior high science teacher. And uh, this turns out to be sort of a metaphor of my life. <laughs> um, growing up in Maple Valley, I, I wanted to stay around home. That's what teachers kind of do. And I wanted to teach in the Renton School District, which was the next district uh, down the sure. valley. And I went in on a Saturday morning in January. In, in those days, they the HR department was open. I applied. They didn't have anything. I went back to the next Saturday and the next. I ended up going eight Saturdays in a row. And by the time I got near the, you know, five, six, seven, the HR director would just look at the room of these people every Saturday. He'd look at me, point his finger and say, Herb, we don't have anything. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll be back next week. And I, the eighth week, ninth week, I missed because I had something to do. I came back. And he looked, came out of his office that morning around 8 o'clock, looked at the crowd, saw me, waved me in. They said, where were you last week? I had a job for you. <laughs> and so the only place I ever applied, I eventually got the job. And it's sort of like, the, that's her determination. <laughs> for the next 40, 50 years, that's kind of what I did. I'll, I'll remember that one, her's determination. So I was reading through some of your uh, bio. I did find some stuff, you know, on you start Googling, you can find all kinds of things. What I read said that you had gone to Seattle Pacific back in the early 1960s. That was right when Cleveland Hall that we're sitting in right now was built. Yes. Actually, yes. the Cleveland Hall opened in uh, May of 1962. So um, this building's been around a long time and so have you. <laughs> so I think the building may have worn is in better shape. Now we're all good. We're all good. We're better with age. You were a Coug, though, at some point. You came to the Ed Doctorate program from 1975 to 1980. What finally drove you to, to do that? Because that's, that's a tough thing to say, hey, you know what? Even though I'm really busy, let's add more to my schedule. Well, that's thanks for that question. It's, that's really a, a pivotal point in my whole life. I was a teacher, as I said, at Renton. I was asked to come in to Prosser, Washington, to be their high school principal. And you had to have a, a principal's license. And so they, they hired me in those days with the temporary. Well, I got my principal's license. And in those days, Washington State was the premier uh, school for that. So I started a we're still this premier school for everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I came to Pullman to get my license to be a, a principal. And while I was here, uh, Tom Gardner was the HR director. Uh, Chumslin was here in the department. Dr. Brain was just the new dean. Mm -hmm. And I got I started on my degree and, and my license. And the next thing they're talking to you about a doctor's degree. And they're very, very encouraging to me as a young young person. But I'm the I'm a principal. I'm not thinking about superintending in those days. Uh, and what what happened is the superintendent retired, and they asked the board asked me if I would be the superintendent. That's where that Saturday uh -huh. came in, Jan <laughs> January four. And of course I said I would, but I had to figure out how to get a license. And I came back over to Pullman, and uh, uh, Dr. Brain and others were very 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 helpful in encouraging in the in the whole thing and. So I started on my license to be a superintendent and the doctor's degree at the same time. I mentioned Chumlin's name in there because he was instrumental in, in a hallway conversation one time. You, you had choices in those years of University of Washington degree over here in Pullman. 
But at Washington, they had this reputation is that they didn't really want you and you had to prove yourself. And you could work for three years getting your degree, something go wrong, they wouldn't graduate you. You're out in the street with half a degree. Chumson's head to me said, Herb, we only take people in that we think can make it and that we want to have our, our degree and be recognized. So if you, if you come in here, we're going to graduate you. You understand that, don't you? And it was so encouraging to me that, man, these people wanted me to be here. And everybody I worked with during those early formative years wanted me to graduate. Not just me. I mean, everybody was here knew sure. that you were part of the crew and they were going to get you through and there, were, there wasn't a hurdle that they wouldn't help you get around. So it was a bonding that went on, and uh, was, it was quite a crew of people that were here in those years, and I'm honored to be, really honored to be part of it. One of the things that, that I have heard, and, and you would have been around to see this, but I heard that back in the day in the George Brain years, he had incredible clout in terms of being able to place people in school districts for things like principal and superintendent and things like that. He just knew everybody, and... If there was an opening, he'd make sure that there was a coog in one of those places. Well, you probably understated his his <laughs> his reach. I don't know if he told you to do something, <laughs> but he was connected and he took care of his students and the graduates from here. I remember I was the principal at Prosser High School in my into my first year, I think, and he wanted me to interview for the Moses Lake High School principal. Bigger job, bigger deal, and he thought I had one year was enough. So I just said, oh, yes, sir. And I, went up, <laughs> I went up and interviewed for the job at Moses Lake. Um, not that I wanted it or anything, but when Dr. Brain gave you advice, <laughs> it meant you probably needed to do it. As luck would have it, that was uh, very shortly after that, I was asked by the Prosser Board to be their superintendent. And uh, he, came, he came down on one of his trips going to his home in Thorpe. He drove down to the valley and came to see me and uh, congratulate me on the job and the kind of things that a mentor does for a young person and never, for, never forget it. I've heard everything about Dr. Brain, including he, uh, he had so much uh, power that he was probably really a secret agent and all these kind of things. And I'm sure he was. Some of those <laughs> I, I don't even care to correct because that lore can be pretty fun, actually. <laughs> we'll just I, I, let he, people think what they want. He spoke Japanese, and so he probably was a Japanese, <laughs> Japanese implant. Another name I want to, I want to put out there is uh, uh, McDougal. Um, McDougal was here in the College of Ed at the time, but he had a part-time job in the summer running the summer school for Washington State across the whole campus. You know, our son Herb had gone to a community college, and he was, he was okay, but he was going to be a marginal uh, admission st student. And uh, Dr. McDougal said, well, Herb, have him come to summer school. When you're here, have him come to summer school, see how he does, and if he does well, we'll consider him for the fall. Well, Herb Jr. came in, knocked out, 10 or 12 hours of A, and he was admitted that fall, and I think he came in as a late sophomore, maybe a junior. I'm not quite sure of that. Sure. But McDougal was influential in his life, and he ended up graduating from Pullman to be, and he was a school teacher himself. So No kidding. A uh, couple of generations that way. <laughs> we have another son, Pete, who came along a little later, and he was here as an undergraduate, graduated in business, and is a very successful real estate uh, man today. So after you became a superintendent in Prosser, you mentioned having been a superintendent in three places in Washington. So where else did you? After uh, my years in in uh, Prosser, I went to Centralia. I'm from Centralia. Oh, really? I, I'm not kidding. A tiger. I'm a Centralia tiger. What year did you graduate? 1998. Do you know Tim Gilmore? 
baseball coach. I love Tim Gilmore. Look at this. What, what a small world. Tim won a state championship when I was there. 1994? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Jay Roberts is yes, probably Jay the Roberts. most famous single athlete at that school. Followed uh, by Lyle Overbay. Overbay. But um, Detla Shrimp was there. Detla Shrimp. We'll Shrimp play basketball. Shrimp won the state championship in... Late 70s. Late 70s. Uh, in football... Uh, they won a state championship, mm-hmm. foot, boys, boys football, men's basketball, baseball, a track right. and field. Was My parents there? still live there. Really? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a good school. And nice kids come out of there. Uh, mostly they graduate and move on to things. It's not... Not a lot of right. work. Not a lot of work down there. Good for you. We we go back only to visit my folks, and this summer we did that, and and the kids enjoyed floating down the Skookumchuck River, which which we did. So uh, what do you know? The the guy who was the forty year basketball coach. Um, yeah, Ron Brown. Ron Brown. My brother played for Ron Brown. Whoa. Yeah. He won a state championship in like seventy nine. Mm-hmm. Came back with Dentless Shrep and won another one. And I think he ended up with maybe three state championships and five or six hundred wins over his career. He's the equivalent of Sid Otten in football. Oh, for yeah. that's, that, that's right. His, his two sons played for him. Yes, um, and one of them is a coach, and one's a lawyer. Yeah. I know. Yep. Uh, the little league baseball program in, yeah. in Centralia is second to none. Correct. Second to none. It was quite an honor for me to be superintendent there, and uh, from there. I moved up to Puyallup. Okay, and I was I was there for almost ten years. Uh, during that time, I went in. It was a, on the not small. I had ten thousand, nine, ten thousand kids. Yeah, we grew five, six, seven, eight hundred kids a year. Wow. I think we built maybe eleven elementary schools, Ooh. one or two junior high schools, and got the money to build a, another third high school for them. It was a great time, and wow. because of the Puyallup. Experience. I was invited by the United States State Department to help with American schools in Asia and specialized in China, in uh, Guangzhou, China, which is Canton by most people's remembrances. And up in Shanghai, we built a help build and advise a great school there and others and out in Shindu and um, Chongqing. So it was it was it was wonderful in my my Puyallup time. So at what point did you decide, hey, we're going we're gonna to move out to Virginia? We're, we're done in Washington State, finally. We can't take the rain anymore in western Washington. Well, here's, here, I've, I have just a wonderful, wonderful wife. And I've met her, and she's fantastic. She's, she is fantastic. and you know, if, uh, She's a top of the high graduate, and we're both Washington people okay. and Washington State people. Never been anyplace, really, our whole life here. But I was young and enthusiastic and, and way too young to be retired. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my friends were going on to doing things that just didn't appeal to me. I, I know I want to be a salesman or a sell levies and or um, tax sheltered annuities. Right. And, I, mean, I, I loved what I did. So I, I put my name in a kind of a national search deal, and one thing led to another, and I was invited to come to Alexandria, one of the, mm-hmm. one of the great historic cities in all of America. Absolutely. Uh, historic and old and urban and diverse and complex as they right. come um and they were looking for somebody who was not from virginia they'd had trouble and they thought one of the problems is there had been too much kind of in-house yeah uh, you need an outsider's perspective they, and i was i was the furthest applicant <laughs> and that's why I, that's why i got the job didn't know a soul but uh i ended up uh, eight years there had a had a terrific time it gave me a chance to meet the president of the united states on three occasions no kidding Two presidents, both Mr. Clinton and Mr. Bush, 
Bush II. George W. Uh, was, yeah. was in the White House for a number of meetings, had lunch with Hillary Clinton in the East Room. No kidding. Was there when President Bush un- unveiled his what turned out to be No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. I say all that because in Washington, after after 50-plus years, I never met the governor. I never <laughs> met a U.S. senator from the state of Washington. But I go to Alexandria, and I meet two presidents and the attorney general and secretary of state and <laughs> um, the surgeon general. I'm just thinking the people. And we had a couple of cabinet members who had kids in our school district. And maybe and maybe the the... Funny, funnest story is that each year, and I think it's in March, the National School Hot Lunch Day. President Clinton was in, was the president, and he uh, he liked to eat hamburgers. Mm-hmm. And so his one of his chief of staffs, or not the not the chief, but one of the deputies, lived in Alexandria. He had his kids in my school district, and he talked to me maybe a month out, and he said, "You know, the president likes to eat with kids on Hot Lunch Day." Could could we use one of your schools as a place for him? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So kids will never forget that. Mr. Mr. Clinton came over that, that that particular morning ahead of time and met with some kids and then he had lunch with me and at the, you didn't you, I never made the national news. I was across the table from him and he was there with kids and we were having school lunch together. He came 6 years in a row to that same school wow. and had the hot lunch with me. It's a spinoff from your work. Yeah. My brother tells a story about how he, he also has never met anybody in Washington State, but he went out to uh, D.C. just for a work trip, and sure enough, he's eating somewhere, and a Supreme Court justice walks in, and he said, this is, this is incredible. Well, uh, Judge, Justice Ginsburg, on Friday nights, ate at a restaurant called Kincaid's, and my wife and I would go into, into Washington, which is across the Potomac from right. Atlanta, uh, from uh, Alexandria, and we sat at the bar at Kincaid's on Friday nights. And Judge, Justice Ginsburg and her husband would come in, and they'd sit on the corner around from us, sometimes next and sometimes a few over. And it's not, you know, every single Friday night, but it was enough where Ms., Mrs. Ginsburg would, would kind of like acknowledge our presence. <laughs> <laughs> you but, again. <laughs> and again, in Washington State, never never knew it justice right. here so it was it was it was really a heady oh my goodness a, a, a heady time for us and then you asked about that retirement it was it was time for me after eight years to do something else yeah and uh when you're in this environment where there's publicity i was i was asked to come and come to south carolina when <laughs> they had a school that needed district that needed some help and i i helped them got them organized and passed a big referendum and retired on June 30th, about July 15th, I was invited to come back to another district, and that was Lexington 5. Helped them and then retired, and was, I was out a year or so and got called back on the third one, and that was Buford County, South Carolina. You know it as Hilton Head. That's, it's in thirds. It's huge, huge. Right. But the lower end is Hilton Head. There's a middle place called Bluffton and then Buford on the north end. Right. So those are the six districts. I, I loved what I did. I had really great school board members, um, Brandon. I, just, I need to say this because you can't do that work for 38 years and with, with lay school people and not like school board members. Mm-hmm. And I would say, how, well, you know, you might ask, well, how would you do it? You, you've got to have a positive attitude towards them as people. They come on a board to, to give service 
Sometimes they disagree with you, and sometimes they really disagree with you. But you got to remember that they're coming on board to do what they think is right. You're the manager of the place, and uh, I am respectful and honor the service of school board members that I served with. It just I never felt like I, I was crossways with any of them. Even when we disagreed, I didn't. I wouldn't let that disagreement get into a, a personal side. I would have loved to serve with you. I'm on uh, Pullman City Council right now, and mm. and uh, so so we have that same separation of, of powers where I'm a policymaker, and they are of course uh, an administrator, and and often they're the ones who do that work day in and day out. We're the ones who talk to residents and hear their concerns and. We're reminded, don't overstep your bounds, right, and and vice versa, and and so there has to be a good working relationship, and I, I appreciate hearing that. I think it, I think it, you would have been good to work with. There's a real art to how you manage or handle the elected official. They have constituents they answer to. They've got things they made promises on. They have what they said they would like to try to do, and as the manager, the superintendent you have to be mindful of the world that they live in. And you can't put them in a spot where they cross over what they're elected to do. So the job Even of, if they were misguided sometimes when they, when they made promises because they didn't, they didn't necessarily know. They didn't have enough background. They said things that they thought they could do, and, and they didn't have the authority, and it was not the right thing to do in the first place. <laughs> but as the superintendent, your job is to take that spot they're in and help them navigate it so that they feel like you're not some some bullheaded straight driving force person right um, you've got a it's a it's an art form it's almost a loss form these days you can't let the board you know they they tell you what to do but they can't let you can't let them tell you what to do so it's a it's a way you you work it out in a humane way I was asked a couple of weeks ago by a colleague who's writing an article about superintendent move and superintendent changes. And one of the things he asked about was, uh, and he's asked more than just me, but he said, well, tell me about the places where you've decided it was time to move on because you just knew that this things were crazy and it's, it's time for you to move. And I said, I never had that experience. I mean, when I, I work for people, Every job I ever left, I had a, an out contract. It took me any time I wanted. I left because I thought I had done what I could do, and it was time to go on to do something else. Now, I know other people have other experiences. I'm not saying that. But um, I, never, I never felt like I was being ever pushed. The other way around, they were offering me, <laughs> want me to stay on. And my wife here, I mean, she's the one that would, she was she was quite easy to move. <laughs> <laughs> because your career has spanned so long, I guess this is you, you have some perspective that maybe uh, other folks such as myself w- wouldn't be able to see just the the longevity. In what way are the challenges of of education today maybe the same still as challenges that existed back in the day? And then how are some of them? some of these complexities and these challenges um, may be very different today than what you would have dealt in, you know, when you first became an administrator. You know, one of the, one of the big things is in the accountability and testing side of the work that in, in, in the day people were sort of like trusting and gave, give you money through levies and bonds and things and sort of trusted the system to do right by kids. Mm. 
but with with the accountability and and and, and Bush too is part of that. But it was he was part of an era. He was part of an era where there was more accountability for the finances, the money. What are we getting for it? What's the return on investment? If we do this, what's the payoff? Nowadays in the sports world, it's the, the word analytics that yes. come in. I mean, that's a, the analytics is a refinement of the accountability. I think schools got overdone on the testing side. But before that, there wasn't much accountability. So there's a flow of things here. Um, I, th- I think one of the things that, that, that I feel like after my, my work is there's not a recognition of the, of the impact on social economic status of children. That if, I know I didn't know this 40 years ago. But it's it is it's race to a degree, it's language to a degree, a lot of things that f- factor into education. But in my mind, the bottom cut line is the social economic status of the kid. If you're on a free lunch or a partial lunch or in a poverty environment, your educational challenges are immense. And how the system overcomes that is the difference between the, the, the good teacher, the good principal, the good district, and those that aren't successful. And if you don't recognize that, you're not doing your job professionally. And, you know, the, the middle-class kids and, and above, they're going to get a good education. They're just the nature of the family and the social economic side of this business. But if you're poor, that's not the way it is. So the burden on the school district is in, increasing. And um, in, the, in the 60s, I guess, Lyndon Johnson had the, Chapter One, Title One, and all of mm-hmm. that. It was based on that model. I don't think we quite realized it. We got money for poor kids, but it, it and, and you bought books and things. I don't think we, it, it, sh- it sharpened over time. The focus got better over time. You want, and it's a sad commentary. They, if you look at the zip code and the, and the income per zip zip code, you can pretty much predict what the test scores are. Washington State's got three hundred school districts. If you look at income by family, you can pretty much predict. And what you have to do as the educator is break that mold. If you're in the district with poor kids, you've got more challenges, a tougher job versus a Bellevue, Mercer Island, Lake Washington, Issaquah, you know, poverty at 20%. Yeah, that's okay. But uh, Yakima, Toppenish, Prosser, Sunnyside, 90%. Um, those are not equal. Their kids are kids, but they're not equal kids when the right. challenge is there in front of you and yet the curriculum is often rolled out the same exact way it is absolutely the same expectations I, I we know there's a problem and and one of the things you know that of course the college of education is doing to address that is have our phd program in cultural studies and social thought in education and they they deal a lot with um, social justice and equity in schools and more on an institutional level, how that, how that really has become institutionalized. And I know the word is pipeline often, but we see yeah. this pipeline which benefits some advantageously and some not so much. I'm proud of uh, the, the dean here and the faculty here and the university here for the emphasis they've, they've placed on this, that they face the same problem um, as the kids come into college. If you don't have a background is a harder it's a part harder deal just staying in school is harder at the mm-hmm. college level and in the public school side of it um it's just a real real challenge one of the things i want to say about the university that's, that I'm, I'm proud of again is that 
as a school school superintendent, we're sometimes criticized for not hiring enough minority teachers. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's not enough minority teachers. I'd hire every single graduate of of color or minority status that you could put out. I'd offer them a contract when they're a freshman if they'd be a teacher. And virtually every superintendent's in that same spot. It's not that we institutionally don't want to hire. There's not enough graduates in the pipe or yeah, undergraduates, graduates in the pipeline to hire. Um, and that's gotta that's gotta be fixed in some way because you do need to put teachers in front of kids of, of race and social economic status. The look and sound like them. Absolutely. You want to do it. You want yeah. to do it. They're just not enough uh, graduates right now. Yeah, I'm really proud of a lot of our faculty that have made that their life's work and their mm-hmm. research uh, objective is to um, figure out ways to increase that. Um, teachers and then educational administrators who are culturally or linguistically diverse so that so that those children can see, they could see that potential Yep, and, and might say, you know, what are my options? I, I can be a teacher. I'm not in higher ed, so I don't, yeah. know, I don't know how to do it. Um, Let me ask you, what, what advice would you have for any individual who uh, wants to be an educational administrator? Um, you know, somebody who's just now, just getting into it. They've, they've, uh, they've made the decision, I want to be a principal, I want to be a superintendent. I mean, what advice would you... It is a great job. It's full time. You've got to put your time, effort, energy into it, the enthusiasm of your life. You've got to take the kids seriously and their families. You have to care what happens to them. And when they're, they may, may be out of school at three in the afternoon, but Saturday afternoon, they're still your kids. And they've, you've got to try to bond and unite and connect with them in a way that gives vibrancy to their life. Obviously, this might sound like semantics, but, but of course, words matter. So to you, what would be the difference between educational administration and educational leadership? Well, this could be old school talk, but you know, the manager manage, sits behind the desk and manages things. The educational leader is out in the hall checking on things. The educational leader is the person who has some vision for the next day, not just keeping it the same as it was yesterday. I was always thought of a person who was visionary in my work. How do I get there? How'd that? I don't even know how that happened. It's just I did push on the envelope of the future. Um, and it was just me. I'm not saying it's anything special, um, but I, well, let me just, we're getting near the end of this. Let me give you the visionary thing that I've got sitting in this very room with George Brain when I was yeah, young. please. He had a thing called a seminar, and eight to ten people, mostly men, I guess, in those days, he'd come in, sit at the end of the table, and the, the rest of us would be about and wait for him to talk. And he'd always come in, and he'd have the Baltimore Sun, the New York Times, the L.A., Times, I guess it was in those days, Chicago Tribune, and he would have cut out stories about education from around the country. And the first part of the two-hour seminar was Dean Brain going over news stories from Los Angeles, from Baltimore, from New York. And here we are, a bunch of country bumpkins from mm-hmm. Washington State. None of us had ever been any place. And here's this this man talking about educational trends around the country to us. And it, it, it made me and others recognize that we're not in a silo by ourselves. We're not in this thing by ourselves. We're probably not leaders in a state, but the people who are leading, the Californias and the, the New Yorks and the, at the time, 
were doing things that we ought to talk about and think about and debate. And it broadened, it broadened my perspective immensely. It wasn't like the Yakima Herald Republic. It was the Los Angeles Times we were dealing mm-hmm. with here. And um, I think some of, the, some of my colleagues from that era, would, we would talk about that. I took that over the next years in my work. And it, when, as superintendent, I meet with my senior, my senior managers every week or every two weeks. And I, I had a clipping service of my own. I took, I took the New York Times <laughs> in my house, and I clip out two or three stories. And we talk about crazy things that districts did or illegal things that superintendents did and how you can get yourself in trouble. Look at this guy in L.A. that he, or man, whoever he was. Uh, and I, what I, I tried to emulate that and broaden the world of the people who work for me. So they didn't think just our district was the only place on earth that had problems and issues or there were solutions <laughs> out there. And, and, of course, you know, when you're in the CIA, of course, people will send you all the newspapers, you know. <laughs> That's where you got them all. Let's end on a, just a light note. Where, where, where are you living and what are you doing now um, well, and, and, until, until, you, until you go back to work? Because I know it's happening somewhere. Well, I am, I am re- retired. <laughs> sure you are. Six or, <laughs> six or seven. Um, we live in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. Um, our son, Peter, who's a, a Pullman graduate, um, lives about 12, 14 miles from us, he and his family. Great. Uh, he came back there while during my years back there. Uh, we come out to Washington every uh, August for two or three weeks to check on our family and do this kind of, this kind of thing. Um, my, when I retired in June, there was a, the final meeting of the year for the superintendents is in a place called Myrtle Beach. Uh, I've been to Myrtle Beach many times. And uh, it was it's a couple of three days of kind of summarizing the year. And the guy who, Ken Childs is the man's name, is very influential. He would be the George Brain of South Carolina. Okay. We stood around the last, the last night talking, and he said, well, what are you going to do, Herb? And I said, I'm going back home to Alexandria. He said, listen, I, I'm working on a job that's going to open up in the fall. Is there any chance you're going to be interested? <laughs> <laughs> and Paula was there. She shook her head and <laughs> no, you're not doing that. Of course, if you're going to Myrtle, you got to negotiate in free putt putt for the whole year. For, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm not. I really, I, I, I don't intend, and I'm not going to do another one. I think I've had my run at it. But I love the work, and I've met great people, and work with wonderful school board members and and communities, and enjoyed my life. And I owe it to my degree and my license from Washington State University. I'm with you right now because of what Washington State allowed me to do in my whole life. And I'm very grateful and appreciative for the, this, re, this little recognition and for what you all did for me and you and, and 40 years of people I've met here. I appreciate that. Your very gracious remarks. Thank you. Well, Herberg, it's been an honor. It really has been. I know our dean said said good things about you before you even came out, and uh, certainly if you come back in August again next year, please stop by. Thank you. Go Cougs. Go Cougs. You've been listening to Education Eclipse, a College of Education podcast from Washington State University.